This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language, as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. I'm going to give you ten minutes to get your hands off my dick. God comes to visit me every once in a while. Actually, he comes more often than I'd like. McManus, you're fucking up my floor, McManus! My dick, you don't have to mop it up again! You lose an eye, you get kicked in the balls, you have a face full of shit, you become a different man. This is a prison, not a democracy. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Please, sir, may I fuck my wife! Don't you walk away, you cocksucker! Come on, Dad! Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. How do you keep that hat on your head? No quote? Right now, we're on the edge of oblivion. We're on the brink of disaster. And before we all join hands and jump, I want another chance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode three of Inside Oz. I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Now, first thing that I need to do on today's episode is say that I messed up a bit of information on the last episode, Visits, Conjugal and Otherwise. For some reason, my brain had a complete moment of madness. I ended up calling the actor playing Governor Devlin by the name Jelko Ivanovich. Needless to say, I got a couple of people message me on social media, and yes, this was completely wrong. His name is in fact Jelko Ivanich. I can't even say it now. So having got that out of the way, let's get on with Season 1, Episode 3, God's Chilling. Originally broadcast on July 21st, 1997, it holds an 8.4 on IMDb. It's written by Tom Fontana, and I'm going to struggle with this name as well, directed by Jean Desergonzac. I hope that's correct, I apologise again if it isn't. In the beginning, God was nothing. So he started making stuff. He made the dirt, he made the sky, he made the water, he made things that swim, things that slither, things with legs. I mean, God turned himself into a big shot. Then a couple of days or a couple of million years, he breathed life into man. And he's been sucking the life out of us ever since. So Curtin up on Act 1, and Augustus is telling us that in the beginning God was nothing, and then proceeds to tell us about how God created everything, and that he's been sucking the life out of us ever since. The prisoners behind him in M-City, they're kind of standing and walking around in the background in a fog, sort of like the Lost Souls, it's a pretty cool visual. So in the first proper scene we join Father Ray, and he's conducting a funeral service for Johnny Post. He's reading John 11.25, which is, I am the resurrection and the life, he that believe in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. A queue of inmates lined up and are paying their respects to post, many of which are throwing up some sort of gang signal. A trio of inmates also sing the hymn Standing in the Need of Prayer, and it was here I started having some sort of strange flashbacks to my primary school days. I can vividly remember singing this in school assemblies, and this hymn in particular was a strange one because there was a girl in my class, she always used to pronounce prayer in a weird way. She'd always say it really quick and really sharply. Imagine trying to read a chapter of a book aloud, but you have to do it in about a quarter of a second. It just comes out as sort of like a loud bark. That's kind of what this girl sounded like. It was really weird. The lead singer of this trio is played by Eugene Ash. He was part of a R&B group called the Funky Poets, which included one of his cousins, Paul Frazier, who's one of the backing singers here. Ash had done some TV work prior to this when he co-wrote and performed the score, and he also acted in the pilot of CBS's Firehouse, which was written by... Tom Fontana. <laughs> so, Fontana once again bringing in people that he's worked with before for Oz. Alongside this scene, we see that Leo has gathered the staff in the library, and he says that he's got three murders in two weeks. So that's Emilio Sanchez, 
Dino Artelani from episode one and Johnny Puss from episode two. Nino's wife passed away naturally, but I'm still including her in the death toll for the series. Leo says that he's got the commissioner in his ear and the press up his ass, so he's getting it from every angle and in most of his orifices as well, by the sound of it. Furthermore, the governor is threatening sending the feds, and worst of all, his daughter wants to move in with her boyfriend, so the poor guy's really starting to feel the pressure. McManus realised that it was Post who burned Dino, so it therefore must have been the wise guys that murdered Post, and says that Keane has the next move. Diane seems convinced that Keane's going to make that next move, but McManus isn't so sure and says that he's noticed the change in him, although he does acknowledge that it's only in a slight change and tries to find a reason for it, thinking it might be due to Keane's recent marriage or that he, maybe Keane is just tired of the gangster way of life. So McManus is still trying to find the best in everyone and makes the point that if they go after Keane now, he'll just revert back to his old ways, or as McManus puts it, his street instincts are going to pop right back up. And he reiterates that he can't meet violence with violence. The scene ends with Keane just about managing to look at Puss the picture. I always seem to remember Diane being a bit more of a prominent character in these early series, but we've actually seen very little of her outside of her speech from episode one where she was telling everybody about the routine. I'm sure that changes as we go through the show. The picture of Post at his funeral's great. He's sat on the bonnet of some red truck holding a gun. Seems to be in some rundown area, so you would think that the place would be crawling with either police or undercover police, but nah. Always time for a quick photo with deadly weapons. Back in M-City, Maxstrom and Adebisi is sat with Keane, who's having his cornrows sorted by a transgender inmate, which predates Orange is the New Black by some 16 years when they had a similar character. Although, in fairness, their character is part of the main cast rather than just a one-shot deal like what we've got here. Adebisi asks when are they going to make the move against the wise guys, and he's convinced that Leo's going to have the place locked down at any minute. Maxstrom jumps in, asking if they are sure that it's the wise guys that killed Post. And we get a quick flashback to the previous episode with Nino giving the order to kill Post, starting by cutting off his penis. Adebisi says to Keane to just give him the word and he'll kill someone. This is the first time we've seen Adebisi threaten someone's life in the series. We've seen him playing mind games with other inmates, like when he was bunking with Beecher in episode one, when he was approaching Saeed, when Saeed was praying. Despite Adebisi creating this haunting presence when he's on screen. This is the first time he's actually looked like he's going to get violent with someone. Keane says just to chill out, and Adebisi wonders whether or not Keane actually cares about what happened to Post. Keane reassures him that he does give a shit, but Adebisi and Markstrom both think that Keane has been acting differently over the last few days. Adebisi says they're also going to kill who ratted on Post. Obviously, at this point, Adebisi is unaware about Keane's interactions with Ryan, which ultimately led to Post being murdered. Keane says that he knows who did it, but he won't say who, and that he'll kill the person himself, as we see Ryan on the other side of M-City getting pally with the Brotherhood. So Adebisi leaves at this point, which gives Marks from the opportunity to ask Keane whether or not the wise guys know who ordered the hit on post, and warns Keane to watch his back, saying that he could be next before he gets up and leaves. Keane seems very aloof and says, yeah, let the fuckers come. He's, he's starting to care less and less about what happens. Nino and D'Angelo look over at Keane whilst we hear Augustus giving another monologue about how being in a gang is a lot like being in a religion, in that there are rules to follow, there's a leader to obey, and how it's all about love at the heart of things. Being in a gang is a lot like being in a religion. you got rules to follow, a leader to obey, and at the heart, it's about love. Love thy fellow man becomes love thy brother gangster. But what if you stop believing the religion you've been preaching? You come to see that the hole is still in your soul. That the God slash love you thought you had is nothing but a hologram. Keen goes to the phone booths and gives Mavis a call and they start to have some phone sex. I was thinking to myself, mate, are you really just going to start rubbing yourself here? Markstrom just told you to be careful about being attacked from behind. The last thing you want to do is go and get killed with a phone receiver in one hand and you'll add it in the other. 
Before King can really get anything going with Mavis, though, Saeed walks into the booth and he looks absolutely disgusted that Keen's doing what he's doing. He just stares at him with a look that would make any any guy's hard on retreat. Keen gives up on his call. Well, well, you would, wouldn't you, really? Back out in MC, Ryan is walking with Schillinger and Beecher and says that Barano has called him in for some further questioning. They pass Ribado and Groves, who say about Post having his dick cut off and shoved into his mouth, with God having paid Ribado another visit to give him that info. We cut to the gym where Adebisi, Markstrom and Keane are all working out. We see D'Angelo walk in and he sits on an incline bench next to them. Adebisi then gives the origin of the term doo-wop. You ever hear how the word doo-wop came to pass? Nah, man, tell me that. Well, over in Harlem town, back in the old days, a couple of Italians were giving muscle to a cat running a speakeasy. I was doing a set, I think maybe of Billy Holiday. These Italians come into the club thinking they can push a brother around. But instead, the brother finds a blood. And outside in the alley, while Miss Billy Holiday sings the blues, the brother doodle wops. And that's how Doo was born. <laughs> How'd you like Johnny Post dick up your ass? How'd you like to put it there? So a fight breaks out with D'Angelo throwing a straight bar with weights directly at Adebisi, who sort of catches it, but not really. Which gives D'Angelo enough time to grab a dumbbell, which he then uses to strike Adebisi in the face. Should have been instant death for Adebisi. It's only a, it's only a lightweight, but it's still made out of iron after all. D'Angelo then fights with Markstrom and gets the better of him before Keane tackles from behind and the fight continues on the ground with Keane choking D'Angelo. The alarm sounds and officers come in and break up the fight. Groves is watching all of this take place from the basketball court, which is next to the weights area of the gym but is fenced off. So we see here that Keane is a bit of a mixture between reverting back to his fighting ways but also seemingly not caring about the consequences of his actions. Even though D'Angelo started the fight, Keane was ready to kill someone right in front of the guards. We also see that D'Angelo is hella tough as he takes on three men at once. Granted, they seem to get the better of him in the end, but he went in there to fight regardless, so all credit to him there. So as a result of this, we go to Leo in his office with McManus. Leo says he wants the SORT team put on alert. So the SORT is the Special Organised Response Team, which means that Leo shouldn't refer to them as the SORT team, because that would mean he's saying Special Organised Response Team Team. It's like when someone says PIN number, you don't need the last bit. The first sort was formed in 1982 at United States Penitentiary Leavenworth, Kansas, and was formed as a response to the increasing violence at the facility. A second sort was formed at USP Marion, Illinois, and today all federal corrective facilities and higher level security facilities are required to maintain a sort. Possible scenarios in which a sort may be deployed include riots, assault on staff or inmates, escapes or attempted escapes, hostage situations, and any terrorist or military strike on the US. There's a knock at the door and we see Saeed, Keane and Nino enter. It's sort of like they've been summoned to the principal's office. Presumably they've been brought in because of the incident in the gym, but it isn't exactly made clear. Before McManus can explain to them why they're there, though, Leo jumps in and takes control and makes it clear that he wants an end to the violence, otherwise the place will be, as he puts it, flooded with feds and before we have a full-blown riot. So that's riot reference number five for anybody who's still counting. He asks the men, no one wants a riot, right? All three men are keeping very quiet until made to answer, with only Saeed really offering any sort of you know, coherent answer, saying that violence for its own sake accomplishes nothing. 
Leo tells all three men to spread the word that if one more fight breaks out, Oz will go on lockdown until the third millennium, which if we're playing in real time would mean that the prison would have been locked down for 894 days, or two years, five months and 11 days in total. We return to M-City and a number of inmates are talking about the meeting between Leo and the three men, so word is getting around. Groves is sat at the card table burning a makeshift tattoo onto his hand with the word mum, using a pen and a lighter. We cut to Keen returning to his pod and there's a white box waiting for him. For some reason, he and Marshram think that somebody has sent some cannolis, which is optimism at its finest. Keen is horrified when he opens the box and finds that it's Post's penis inside. I love the number of expletives he uses in such a short amount of time. What's that? Some cannoli, some shit. Cannoli. Oh, god damn! What? Motherfucker, Johnny Dick! Shit! Oh, fuck, god damn! Motherfuckers! Cut to nighttime, and we see that Keen sets his mattress on fire, which goes up very quickly, probably because it's ultra cheap material. Officers quickly enter and extinguish the fire, and Keen is taken to McManus's office. You wanna tell me what the fuck you did that for? I was bored. Bullshit. I've watched you since the day you checked into M-City. I've seen you make cold, calculated decisions. I've seen you restrain loose cannons. Now all of a sudden you put your fucking mattress! No one is going to end you up in a hole. You want to go to lockup so bad, because why? Someone's after you? I never ran away from a fight in my life. Then what? I just want to spend some time alone. Well, you're going to do that, officer. You know, your brother Billy's coming back from the hospital. So I hear. Yeah, but he's not going to be in M-City. He's going to be in cell block three. Fucking fag unit. Take him to AdSec. King. Wish you'd learn to trust me. So McManus says to take King to AdSeg, meaning administrative segregation, more commonly referred to as the whole. I also love the way he says bullshit when he's angry. Bullshit. So Keen gets taken down to the hall, but when he's put into the room, Healy is waiting for him and he clocks him round the face with his nightstick. He warns Keen that nothing better happened to Ryan O'Reilly before hitting him in the face again. We see the flashback to Ryan's crime, which includes a police chase in which Ryan ends up running over a construction worker before crashing his car. He tries to escape, but is apprehended very quickly. Augustus runs down Ryan's lengthy list of crimes, which equates to two counts of vehicular manslaughter, five counts of reckless endangerment, possession of a controlled substance, Criminal possession of a weapon and parole violation. We're told that Ryan is in for life, but is up for parole in 12 years. It's at this point that I find the sentencing of some criminals to be a bit confusing. Ryan's killed two people and could be out in 12 years, while Nino Shibeta has only conspired to kill and is up for parole, quote-unquote, in 70 years. I don't see how that makes any sense. That's not to say that it's poor writing. But I had to do some research and look into it a little and found that it's likely at the time that the sentencing guidelines for the state and an inmate's past criminal history may have played a part in each man's sentencing. While Nino was convicted, he may have been in and out of prison before, so his sentence will have had his criminal past record taken into account. Whereas Ryan may have only gone to prison for the second time in this instance, hence the charge of parole violation. So depending on what the, that previous conviction was for, that could explain why he was given a parole term rather than being sentenced to life without the possibility. In addition to that, each state has its own set of guidelines when it comes to sentencing, meaning that sentences can differ from state to state even though the crime may be the same. So we cut to Ryan, who 
looks like he's sat in some sort of group therapy session and he's telling a story about a man who came to him begging for a cigarette. But Ryan lies to him saying that he doesn't have any. While Ryan is telling this story, the camera is slowly coming around Ryan and reveals that he's sat back to back with Father Ray in the cafeteria and that Ray is actually holding confessional. I felt a bit sorry for Ray at this point. So far we've seen the poor guy having to conduct a wedding, a funeral service and now confession in the cafeteria. At least Sister Pete had an office that she uses. And so does Ray, that's where we first saw him last episode, but since then all his business has been happening in the cafeteria. Ryan finishes his story in which Ray says that Ryan hasn't actually committed a sin, but that he was being altruistic, and asks why he actually came to confession. Ryan then tells him that he thought he'd be able to sneak a smoke on his way back and pulled out a cigarette. I like to think that this incident that Ryan is talking about happened earlier that day. He's found it funny and has decided to go and tell somebody about it straight away, and it just so happened that Father Ray was holding confession at the same time. So after his confession, Ryan heads to the library where he meets up with Beecher. Now, we saw Ryan and Beecher earlier, but Schillinger was with them at the time, so this is the first real interaction we're seeing between them. And the first time that Beecher has managed to get away from Schillinger, aside from his conjugal visit with his wife. Ryan asks Beecher about all the stuff that's been going on over the last few weeks, Beecher acknowledges him, but is keeping his cards close to his chest. He's already got himself into a messy situation by putting his trust in someone he didn't really know, and he's clearly being a bit more defensive this time around. Ryan starts to ask Beecher about him being a lawyer, but Beecher tells him he's been disbarred after being convicted of a felony and that he's been made an example of by being sent to Oz, rather than some cushy club med. Which could be a reference to the working title of the show, or it could just be a coincidence. Ryan persists and asks Beecher if he can take a look at his case and see if he has any chance of an appeal. Beecher tells him that he was in litigation, not criminal law, basically meaning that Beecher worked on lawsuits instead of criminal cases, but they will take a look at Ryan's case and they shake hands to close the scene. We get a quick shot of Beecher attending some sort of mass in the church come cafeteria. He's on his knees with his hands together, but he's not really paying attention to the prayer. He heads back to M City, where he's greeted by a towel-clad Schillinger, who asks Beecher how church was and if he feels sanctified and pure. Not that it would matter if he did or not, because Schillinger demands Beecher get undressed and they are going to go take a shower. Beecher says he's already had one, but Schillinger tells him, that's okay, when I'm done with you, you'll need another one. So, no prizes for guessing what he's alluding to here. Beecher removes his shirt before we cut to the next scene, which thankfully doesn't take place in the shower. We're spared Beecher's humiliation and torture on this occasion. Instead, we cut to the kitchen, and Beecher is walking with Sister Pete, and she's telling Beecher that her assistant has been paroled and that Beecher will be taken over from now on. Beecher is relieved with his new role, says that he wasn't really cut out for factory work, and Pete jokes that she praised Jesus when she found out that Beecher knew how to use the computer programs. And it's at this point that Beecher insinuates that he's having a crisis of faith, and that he feels like God is ignoring him. As you would expect, Pete reassures Beecher about God hearing his prayers, and that maybe he's answered Beecher's prayers just not in the way that Beecher would hope. She asks him what he prays for. Beecher just says that he wants to get out of Oz. So Beecher takes a seat at his desk, which has a computer that looks so archaic when you watch this back. There's more memory in the most basic of phones these days compared to this massive computer. There's a scene in a future episode where the computer gets upgraded, yet it's still Stone Age compared to the day. I can't remember the specs off the top of my head, but I'll go over it when we get to that episode. Beecher laments about, about how good of a lawyer he was, and he feels that the systems failed him when he needed it the most. He also says about how he used to be a lot of other things, such as a husband, a father, but that God has taken all of that away from him. Sister Pete, she's trying her best to keep 
Beecher's spirits up and tries to say that maybe God has taken all of that away so that Beecher can find his true self through God. But Beecher then drops the bomb that Genevieve is divorcing him. Clearly, their last meeting was too much for her to take. And it must be tough on people to have to adapt to such a huge change in their lives. Beecher compares God to a tumour if he is inside of him at all. The scene ends with a shot from the top corner of the room, symbolic of God's POV perhaps, and reaffirming Sister Pete saying that God is everywhere. But on this occasion he's just standing back and letting things play out, hearkening back to the title of the episode. We cut back to M-City and Groves is playing cards with Rebido. He sees Groves' tattoo, but from his perspective it looks like he's, it's saying wow. But Groves corrects him that it says mum. Obviously he's using the American spelling here, M-O-M. Not really much of anything of consequence happening here, it's just nice to break things up a little bit with a joke here and there. We move over and see Schillinger and Beecher along with the rest of the Brotherhood. Schillinger says that one of the Muslims was trying to convince him that Jesus was black, or words to that effect, I'm cleaning it up a little bit if I'm honest, and... Even quoted from the Bible trying to back his shit up. I know, right? Using some form of evidence to try and prove a point, the, the audacity of the man. Beecher chimes in saying that Jesus was from Judea, so it was probably of olive skin complexion, and I'm thinking at this point, Beecher, just stop. Stop right now. There's some great eyebrow acting from one of the extras in the Brotherhood who sat between the two men. He pulls a great face. Schillinger, in a rage, turns back to a page with a painting in his Bible saying, does that look like a nigger to you? Which is interesting in how Schillinger fails to use the Bible as evidence compared to the unnamed Muslim he spoke to earlier. Now, if the Bible was full of lovely photos, he'd maybe have a point. Schillinger says that Beecher has been getting awfully mouthy lately and says that he'll have to teach him a lesson. He kicks a chair away and tells Beecher to polish his boots. Beecher naively pulls a rag out from his pocket before Schillinger tells him to do it with his tongue. Beecher complies and we get what I call the straight out of Compton shot of Schillinger and some of the Brotherhood looking down at him. So Beecher's gone to cough his guts up after licking another guy's shoes and Ryan comes into his pod asking how he's getting on with looking at his appeal but notices that Beecher's been crying and tells him that he's got just the thing to cheer him up. They go down to somebody's pod that's down in the bottom corner of M-City that neither man lives in. So either whoever's pod this belongs to is fine and dandy with people using it for whatever or they just didn't think to ask. Ryan produces a joint, spliff, whatever you want to call it, and they proceed to smoke it. So five o'clock rolls around and it's time for the count and Ryan and Beecher both stumble out of his pod and both men are, are as high as kites. Ryan is reciting a traditional Irish blessing to Beecher, which is all about luck. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face and rain fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. <laughs> so Beecher gets back to his pod. He's slapping the handrail like a little kid. It's great. Schillinger asks him where he's been and sees that Beecher is a little bit fucked up and he's fuming. He says that if he catches him so much as snorting lint that he'll beat him up next time. But Beecher, with some newfound confidence, he brushes him off saying, you can do whatever you want to me, I don't care. Schillinger thinks this is just because Beecher's high, but Beecher says it's because God is everywhere and he has him in the hollow of his hand. Quoting back the blessing that Ryan previously said, I really like this scene for the range of emotions that Beecher goes through. At one point he's about ready to give up completely, particularly on his faith. Only to then find somewhat of an ally in Ryan, who gives him a much-needed confidence boost. Even if it is just through a, a bit of weed. It's the first time we've really seen him stand up to Schillinger too, drug-hazed though it may be, and I'm looking forward to seeing where their story goes from here. We're back in the cafeteria, and this time it's Donald Groves who's come to raise confession. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. What? 
I don't know what to do. I've never done this confession thing before. I didn't think that you were Catholic. What are you doing here? I got caught sneaking into the morgue again. You ever seen a guy with his prick cut off? No, I can't say that I have. It's not pretty. I, I got put in the hole. The hack comes around and says that he'll let me out for ten minutes if I need to see you, so I say yes. Well, you have to go back. Wait, Father. Maybe I'm a convert. You can't become a Catholic just to get out of the hole. Come no, on. No, 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 wait. I've been reading a lot since I got here about different faiths, and yours is pretty nifty. Catholicism is nifty. You have that whole mystical transubstantiation bit going. That's right. The Eucharist becomes the body of Christ. So you're actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's right. Now how can I not get behind a religion like that? Augustus quotes Genesis 1-3 as we see a fresh-faced new inmate coming in, and he's getting whoops and cheers from some of the other inmates. He's been given Adebisi as a sponsor and is sharing a pod with Keane, and we're told that his name is Kenny Wangler, played here by J.D. Williams. Real name Darnell Williams, he goes by J.D. to avoid confusion with his namesake, who starred in ABC's All My Children. I'll go into J.D.'s career posters in more detail another time, but he's another alumni of Homicide, although he only appeared in one episode in 1999, but he's probably most famous for his role on HBO's The Wire, but we'll cover that another time. Prior to Oz, he only had two acting credits, appearing in New York Undercover, as well as the film Death Riders, which holds a 3.6 rating on IMDb, has a poster that looks cheap as hell, and whose top build cast features Jason Williams, Robert Brando, who I doubt is related to Marlon, in his only credited role, and Susan Brinkley. Have a can of cook if you've heard of any of them. Also, according to IMDb, people who liked this also liked The Danger Zone and Danger Zone 3 Steel Horse War, which sadly doesn't seem to be an equestrian version of Terminator. Nobody seems to like Danger Zone 2, though. So Kenny is in Oz for murder in the first degree. I had to look up what it meant by this as well. It's always something you hear in film and on TV, but I've never really known what it's referring to. So murder in the first degree is in which a murder is premeditated, so Kenny's flashback we see that he shoots somebody that he was robbing. So him having decided to leave his house with a gun puts that in predetermination because he's carrying a weapon, whereas murder in the second degree is when the murder is not premeditated. So if he had picked up something from the street, like a rock, and killed his victim, he has killed someone, but he hadn't planned to do it beforehand. So even though Kenny is only 16 years old, he's been tried as an adult, and that's how he's ended up in Oz rather than going to juvenile prison. He says to Keane that Adebisi has told him that Keane's crew is the one to get with and he wants in. Keane wants to think about it and Adebisi questions him on exactly what there is to think about. Adebisi dismisses Kenny, much to his annoyance, and says to Keane that they're going to need every man they can get if they're going to get back at the wise guys. He leaves Keane in the pod and Keane continues to appear to be in his own little world. Kenny goes down to the floor and introduces himself to Saeed. He's starstruck in meeting Saeed and gets a little tongue-tied. Saeed seems flattered to meet Kenny and tells him, the things I say out loud you already know, and introduces him to the rest of the Muslim group, as Keane looks on from above and locks eyes with Saeed. Kenny is told by Saeed that he has been robbed of his youth, which he describes as a very special gift, and says that fear has been put in its place. Keane is loitering around as Saeed tells Kenny about how he had a fear of being poor, and that even though he fears God, which in the Muslim faith is referred to as taqwa, says that he loves God too. Saeed asks Kenny if he wants to be in a gang, and invites Kenny to join the Muslim group, and that he can learn to be a real man. We then get a montage of Kenny with the Muslims as they go through their daily routine, which includes sit-ups in the gym, a lecture in the cafeteria-slash-confessional-slash-wedding-chapel-slash-funeral-parlour, and prayers to Mecca in M-City. 
The scene with the prayers sees Schillinger simulating anal sex on one of the members of the Brotherhood with a towel wrapped around his head. Going back to what we were saying in episode 1 about the show being on HBO, you would never get away with that on a network show back in 1997. You'd probably struggle to get away with it in a show even on HBO nowadays, which shows quite a change in attitudes over the years. With each of these segments, we see Kenny becoming increasingly less interested in the Muslim way of doing things, and he walks out on the prayers. You also see Keen overlooking all of these activities too. Perhaps he's thinking of joining the Muslims too. Saeed did go to Leo last week to plead his case for marriage after all. So next up we see Keen at the payphones and he's asking to speak to Mavis and that's probably all he's going to do this time after Saeed walked in on him before. He's told that Mavis is out and gets more and more angry as the call goes on and that he's not being told where she is. The other person hangs up and Keen slams the phone down in annoyance. In another pod we see Kenny taking a hit of some drugs and he's there with Markstrom and Keen who looks despondent and they're sat at desk chairs, kind of like what you would get in school. Markstrom makes reference to Keane thinking that Mavis is cheating while Kenny is snorting whatever the drugs are. It's not a line of cocaine on the table, so it's probably some sort of popper. Which I can't say I've ever tried myself, but I can remember my mum finding some in my brother's room one time and her going absolutely apeshit at him. Saeed marches into the pod, pulls Kenny around in his chair, looks deep into his eyes and sees that he's messed up from the drugs. He tells Keane about how Kenny can still have a life on the outside if he gets paroled in six years. Kenny gets excused for the second time this episode. Markstrom goes with him, but not before having a sort of a you-wanna-go standoff with Saeed. Saeed tells Keen to feel the fire, of hell presumably, and that he's done with him. Keen then has a flashback of his various wrongdoings and asks Saeed to save him, and collapses to the floor crying. Saeed embraces him and places his taquilla on Keen's head and tells him, no, you save me, to close Act 1. Augustus delivers a monologue about how you can sometimes lose sight of others when embracing religion, and then we're back in the kitchen with Keen and his brother Billy, who is back from the hospital, having been there since episode 1. Keen gives him a reluctant hug, which makes sense considering his recent conversion and the view of homosexuality in the Muslim faith. Keen tells Billy how things, and more specifically himself, have changed while Billy was in the hospital, and says that Billy is going to have to change too. He tells Billy that he needs to stop being gay, and that if he doesn't do so, he won't be able to protect him anymore. To which Billy says fine, but Keen says that he also can't be his brother anymore, to which Billy says fine again, only this time with a little bit more tears in his eyes. Keen then grabs his arm and says that he's going to beat Billy up if he doesn't stop, but Saeed sees this and tells Keen to stop. Saeed sounds horrified when he sees how Keen is acting. His reaction is very, whoa, 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 what you doing, man, as Billy leaves the scene in tears. So Keen and Saeed go off to have a talk to clear things up. Keen says, but I thought you said we ain't down with faggots, to which Saeed says a little more diplomatically, that Islam rejects homosexuality and that Keen is not going to reach Billy through intimidation and that he has to set an example through love. Keen says that it's hard and that he's been using his fist his whole life and Saeed accepts that he's not expecting Keen to change overnight. He tells Keen that he has Allah on his side to call on him and he will give Keen strength. Keen says that he feels as though he should apologise to everybody that he has wronged, with Saeed saying then that is what he must do, make his enemies his friends. Keen seems perplexed as thinking of them as friends, to which Saeed gives out a sigh as he thinks of another way of explaining it. He says others may see Keen's faith as a threat to them, and he will have to love them as a result. You can see in this scene how Saeed is able to get people to listen to him. He has a real charisma in how he uses his words. He'd be a great salesman on the outside. Cut to Kenny taking another big snort of some drugs as Keen comes to see the group. Yo, Kenny, I see that drug counselor doing you a whole hell of a lot of good. Well, man, fuck that drug counselor. <laughs> fuck it. What are you doing here? Yo, Jefferson, what's up, man? 
Brothers, my name is now TZ Ozu. <laughs> T what? <laughs> Step off, brother. TZ. Step off. I'm done with that. What the fuck's the matter with you? Sire, we've been doing it all wrong, brother. The whole package. This is not the way. I told you. Sire's been fucking with his head. We gotta cut out all this hatred. We need to learn to love one another, embrace one another. The only person we need to be fearing is God. Motherfucker, shut the fuck up with that shit. Are you still with us? Are you still a brother? I am your brother. We all got I said cut that shit, nigga. But what I mean is you still a brother. Like this. Doing this. No. Get the fuck away from me. That's a lot of that Homeboy, get it soft, man. Come on, that's enough. Come on. Give me that shit. So Keane seems to have gone from one way of life to another one in a very short amount of time, but at least he's found something to put his mind to, whereas the others seem to be on a downward spiral. We cut to Ryan mopping the floor, and right on cue, someone walks over it. In this case, it's Rebido and Groves. Happens every time when you get the mop out. Keane comes over and tells Ryan that they must repent for what they did to Dina and for getting post-killed. Keane says that he's not going to rat Ryan out, but Ryan asks him what the catch is. Keane tells him if he were to tell anybody that Ryan would be killed, but instead he would rather have Ryan see the sins that he's committed and change his ways. It's also in this scene where we get a guest appearance from the boom mic up in the right corner of the shot. Ryan goes to see Nina, who is in his pod playing cards with D'Angelo. Ryan tells Nina that Keane arranged the hit on Dina and asks Nina's permission to arrange for Keane to die. Nina shows his cynical side once more and asks Ryan why he would do such a thing, with Ryan telling him it would be a sign of good faith between the pair and Nina accepts the offer. D'Angelo asks why Nino would allow such a thing, and as I would in this situation, it says, if he wants to get his hands dirty, what do I care? And that by doing it this way, the homeboys will kill Ryan in retaliation. Presumably he's unaware of Keane's recent conversion, and that he's fallen out of favour with the homeboys. Ryan meets up with Healy in the corridor, much like they did in the first episode, and Ryan whispers into his ear, so we don't actually hear what's been said. Healy and another officer go to get Keane from the cafeteria, and we get a quick shot of Ryan, Nina, and the homeboys all looking over to see what's going down. Keane asks why he's being escorted out, but he's getting nothing from the officers. Saeed asks too, but is similarly brushed off with Healy saying, I don't need to explain anything to you, your holiness. They leave with Keane, and we get Ryan and Nina exchanging glances, knowing that business is being taken care of. Healy throws Keane into the gym and locks the door behind him. Waiting for Keane in the gym are two inmates who start to corner him. Keane says that he has no problem with them and he doesn't want to fight. As we see two guards appear at a high up window with a video camera that looks like it weighed a ton. 2018 you'd be able to get up there with your camera phone in your pocket. 1997 you had to undertake a six month strength and conditioning program just to pick it up, never mind climbing up to higher ground. One of the hired goons attacks and... Keane disposes of him quickly before goon number two tries his luck but gets a kick in the dick for his troubles. The fight continues with Keane fighting each of them one at a time. They're like the first enemies you would come across in a video game. Completely useless, the pair of them. One of them finally decides to attack from behind but Keane once again gets the advantage. He applies a standing rear naked choke and in somewhat of an adrenaline rush snaps the goon's neck. We hear an officer say... Would you look at that, the motherfucker killed Martinez. As Keane looks up and it, it dawns on him that he's been set up and he screams in terror. We cut back to M-City where Nino and Saeed exchange knowing looks to each other before Leo sends in the sort to lock down the prison. 
Governor Devlin arrives, played by Jelka Ivanic, not Ivanovic, as I said last time out. They're meeting some news reporters in the lobby. Devlin states that he's concerned about the recent number of murders that have occurred, but has confidence in Leo and that the staff will be able to sort the problem. Leo says that he's always happy to see the governor visit to exchange ideas and they leave to go to Leo's office. Once there, you see that they've been putting on their best performances for the media as Devlin's demeanour completely changes, asking if anybody actually knows how to run the prison. Leo lays it out to him that they are experiencing a full-on race war and that they're trying to contain the situation. Devlin says that they're not doing a very good job of it, to which McManus chimes in claiming that the governor isn't helping. Devlin chuckles to himself as he asks who McManus is, so presumably this is the first time that they've met or at least had a conversation, which in itself raises the question as to how new M-City is in terms of being a working part of the prison and how long McManus has been at Oz himself. Devlin sarcastically refers to M-City as the wave of the future as he lights up a cigarette, takes a seat at Leo's desk and puts his feet up, making himself at home. McManus tells Devlin that it's he who's causing a lot of the tension, making mention to the smoking and conjugal visit bans. He says, bit by bit you're stripping these men of their basic human needs, to which Devlin says that that's, that's the point, and calls McManus a liberal prissy and that if McManus could see that, they wouldn't be having the problems that they do. He asks McManus, when you look at me, what do you see? To which McManus rather weakly replies, a man. Devlin then proceeds to compare himself to being amongst the Greek gods of Mount Olympus, and says that even amongst the gods there was a hierarchy, with Mercury being less of an Apollo, Apollo being less of an Zeus, and then compares himself, McManus and Leo, to those three, and says that he is Zeus, the king of the gods, and that he must be obeyed or else his thunderbolts will strike. Whilst I do like Devlin's analogy to a certain degree, he undermines his own point by mentioning Mercury, who was in fact a Roman god. In Greek mythology, he would have been known as Hermes. He could be undermining McManus by referring to him as an outsider, but I think he just messed up his own analogy. Either way, he is placing McManus at the bottom of the pecking order by comparing him to Messenger of the Gods Mercury, whereas Leo as Apollo gets to be god of music and medicine. The more obvious comparison that can be made is that Devlin in fact has a Napoleon complex, aided by the fact that he's about a foot and a half shorter than McManus. It's here that McManus starts to fire back at Devlin, saying he isn't a god, but Leo quickly cuts him off and tells him to take a walk because he isn't helping. Devlin tells Leo that he wants the murders to stop, and that he wants Keane to be tried, convicted, and wants him to die, now that he's brought back the death penalty. Now, many have speculated as to where Oz is actually set. We covered in episode 1 that part of that episode was filmed in Baltimore as part of the pitch to HBO, but the series itself was filmed in an old Nabisco factory in Manhattan, which was the first to mass-produce Oreo cookies in the US. However, it's never explicitly stated where the prisoner is located, so people just sort of speculated that it was in New York, partly due to Tom Fontana being a New Yorker, or in the neighbouring state of New Jersey. With that being said, the death penalty being brought back did occur in real life, but not quite as it occurs here. The state of New York stopped all executions in 1984, but it was reinstated in 1995 by Governor George Pataki, in which lethal injection acted as the means of execution. The state of New Jersey had abolished the death penalty in 1965, but reinstated it in 1982, although no executions were carried out between that year and the date of its second abolition. Executions were halted in New York State after the New York Court of Appeals found the law to be unconstitutional. The death penalty was completely abolished in both New York State and New Jersey in 2007, meaning that life imprisonment without the possibility of parole is now the maximum penalty a convict can face. So Devlin bringing the death penalty back close to what happened in real life in 1995 would suggest that Oz is in New York State rather than in New Jersey, as the state already had the death penalty in force, and that Devlin is governor of New York. 
You can find a bunch of information on the history of the death penalty by going to the website of the Death Penalty Information Center at www.deathpenaltyinfo.org. So Devlin ends the meeting by telling Leo to end the lockdown, saying that if the public finds out that the prison is in lockdown, they'll get tense and think that control has been lost. Leo argues that by being in lockdown, that shows that they are in fact in control, which is a fair point. But Devlin is saying that he's not talking about what's real and that he sees that they're in control but he's concerned with public perception. Leo asks, what if we have a riot? That's six, by the way. Asking what that would do for public perception and the governor's career. Devlin simply says, I wouldn't worry about me, Warden. I'm the one with the Thunderbolts, remember? So this scene really sets Devlin up as somewhat of an ultra baddie. He feels that he is, as he puts it, King of the Mountain, and another character that has a god complex. And something is going to have to give between these competing egos of... Devlin, Leo, and McManus. We see Leo storm into McManus's office, and there must have been some sort of passage of time here as he says to McManus that he's just had a call from Devlin, saying that he's just had a call from a senator, who Leo calls McManus's friend, complaining about Devlin's interference in Oz. McManus says that somebody's got to stop this little Napoleon, so McManus is on the same page as us, and that the senator has the balls to do so. Leo tells McManus that Devlin is bringing in the FBI to investigate the recent murders. To which McManus says that maybe they'll do a better job than Barano has managed so far. That remark makes Leo get very defensive, saying that Oz is his prison and that the last thing he wants is the feds coming in spooking the inmates, and the last thing he wants or needs is McManus taking things on by himself. He leaves saying that this is McManus's fault and he won't forget it. You get the feeling that Leo, although he hasn't lost control, he is starting to feel his grip is loosening and he's desperate to get it back and prove that he's worthy of his position. And that maybe he feels he should be atop of Olympus himself, obviously not content with looking after the CDs and the aspirin. So we cut to Leo meeting the FBI investigators, some of which are in suits, others of which have that familiar FBI jacket that we've seen a million times before on other shows. We get a montage of the investigators interviewing inmates, including Saeed, Nina, and a shackled Keen, while Leo takes the others on a tour of where the murders occurred and explains what sort of state the bodies were in when they were found. The interrogation room seems to have lost its US flag from the last episode, too. We then get McManus meeting the investigator, who introduces himself as Jeremy Goldstein. He thanks McManus for his time, with McManus saying that he wants the murders solved as much as anyone. Goldstein says that Oz is an interesting place, and casually mentions that he hasn't been called Kike so much since he was at prep school. The term Kike goes back to the early 20th century, when Jewish migrants arrived at Ellis Island, which is in the upper New York Bay. The island's Immigration Inspection Station, which sounds like a great title for a prog rock album, was the busiest in the country, and saw over 12 million immigrants passed through between 1892 and 1954. The Jewish migrants wouldn't sign their papers with an X which was customary at the time, as they associated the X with the cross of Christianity. Instead they would sign their papers by drawing a circle. In Yiddish the word for circle is keikel, meaning little circle, and before long immigration officials were calling anybody that signed with a circle in place of an X a keikel, which then got shortened to kike and the term is seen as a derogatory slur for the Jewish people. Goldstein asks McManus if he has a problem with him being Jewish, asking whether or not he sees him as some sort of Christ killer, to which McManus says that he isn't even sure Christ really died. So it's safe to assume that McManus practices some form of Christianity. The name McManus being of Irish heritage is more likely a practicing Catholic. Goldstein says that McManus thinking Christ didn't die is fair enough, but that Dino Ordolani certainly did, and proceeds to question whether or not Post killed him of his own volition. McManus implies that Post wasn't very bright and he was most likely put up to it, with his guess being that it was Keane who did so. Goldstein questions as to why Keane would kill Julio Martinez, the guy from the fight earlier on, in the gym. 
The man says that he doesn't understand as Keane hasn't said anything since except to pray. Goldstein asks whether or not it was strange that Keane and Martinez were in the gym unsupervised. To which McManus says that it was, in the same way that it was strange that Puss was let in the hall to Bandina. Goldstein presses McManus as to whether or not he thinks guards were involved. McManus saying it was possible and probable. Goldstein then begins to question McManus about being involved himself. There's a long pause before McManus asks if Goldstein is implying that he's a suspect. To which Goldstein says, I'm FBI until I've got a reason not to believe you're a suspect. So the FBI is apparently full of people who will believe anything until it's disproven to them. What a bunch of cynical bastards. McManus has a little chuckle to himself in a sort of a I can't believe this shit sort of way, and we fade to black to end Act 2. So Act 3 opens with another Augustus segment. Now I don't feel like I've really gone into a whole lot about these so far. It's an interesting narrative framing device employed to break up the action a bit. In an interview, Fontana said he chose this approach because in prison, guys aren't that forthcoming about what they think and what they feel because that leaves them open and vulnerable to attack. So my thought was to just let someone articulate what all this craziness meant. People have likened the use of this type of narrative to that of a Greek chorus, which in ancient Greek theatre would offer background information to help the audience follow the performance. And this is what Augustus does by breaking down the fourth wall. Rather than simply saying what is happening through exposition, he adds context or a theme to the proceedings. So Augustus asks us to name the seven deadly sins, saying, come on, you all saw that Brad Pitt movie. Which I honestly hadn't at the time, largely down to only being 13 years old at the time. In the UK, it was a lot harder to get into movies with higher age ratings back then. I did watch Seven again quite recently though, and it's aged very well. If you haven't watched it in a long time, or at all, go and watch it. Augustus starts to list the sins, saying that everyone gets lust, and also mentions gluttony, greed, envy, sloth and wrath, and then asks us to name the last one, saying that if you think you know the answer and that you're better than everyone else, then you're guilty of it. I have to admit, even though I just mentioned about how I recently just watched the film again, I couldn't remember what the last deadly sin was, so I had to look it up, and the answer is, of course, pride. While this little quiz is going on, Augustus has his back to Alvarez, who is sat in a chair playing with his hair, wiping his brow and rubbing his chin. So he's guilty of pride by being enamoured with his own appearance. Not really sure why though, as he hasn't got enough stubble to brush and the hair on the back of his head isn't long enough to do anything with. So we get the crime flashback for Alvarez, in which he's hanging with his friends on a street corner, when a reversing car scratches his own car. Alvarez pulls out the driver, throws him to the floor, and his girlfriend, Maritza, who was mentioned in the last episode, starts to put the boots to the other driver while Alvarez smashes his windscreen and windows with a baseball bat before going back over, pulling a knife out and slicing the man's face on the right cheek. Now aside from the face slashing, I'm kind of on Alvarez's side with this one. Watch it back, and the driver has got so much space to parallel park into, it would have been harder to hit Alvarez's car than not hit it. It's a shocking bit of parking. We get a quick flashback to the last episode when Alvarez met Ray talking about Maritza being pregnant, and we dissolve into seeing Alvarez combing his hair that's too short to need combing. Some other inmates come up to him, they're speaking Spanish at first but then switch to English asking if he ever stared at himself in the mirror when he was making love to his girlfriend. Alvarez being seemingly so in love with himself would make him narcissist in this little Greek play we've got going, although he wasn't a god. Alvarez quickly changes the subject to Keen, saying that he needs to get done for what he did to Martinez. So Alvarez seems to have quickly assumed the leader role of the Latino inmates in M-City. Ryan walks in and speaks to Carlos, one of the other inmates, and says that he wanted to do some business, and that he's heard that Ryan is tight with the guards. 
Ryan says that he doesn't know what he's talking about, but even if he did, things are a little too crazy right now, and that nobody's going to help nobody do nothing. So double negatives flying all over the place in Oz. As Ryan leaves, Ray comes to the door and tells Alvarez that Maritza has gone into labour and that they need to go. They hightail it out of there and we see them arrive at the women's prison just in time for the birth. So Alvarez has done a 180 since last time when he was saying that he didn't care about being at the birth. So something that Ray said must have got through to him. We cut back to M-City and Alvarez is showing off a photo of his newborn son to a guard in McManus, who tells him he needs to call Maritza straight away. We then cut to Alvarez and Ray in confession and the whole tone has shifted very quickly. Father, ever since the baby was born, you know what, I've been bragging to all the other guys about him, about how beautiful he is and shit like that. I mean, you really got to admit, I mean, he's, he's the most beautiful baby in the world. So now I'm thinking that, like, like, maybe I went a little overboard. Because Maritza called me this morning talking about that the baby got a bad liver and, and, and he's still in the hospital. And they think that he's going to die. So now I'm thinking that maybe God heard me bragging so much and he decided... To, you know, punish me. Oh, Miguel. God doesn't work that way. I mean, growing up, you know, I knew I was the best looking in my hood. You know, I told everybody. You know, I was the best athlete. I was the best lover, you know, even my fucking car. So now I'm thinking that, you know, God's pissed off. I'm wondering if he could talk to God for me and, and tell him that if he saves my baby... You know, I'll stop being such a big mouth. Because you do that for me, Father. I will. But you got to pray to God, too, you know. Don't negotiate. you got to stop bragging for your own good. I know that. But if my baby dies, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, it, it's like I'll die. Miguel. You should pray to God for your son's health. But you should also ask God to give you and Maritza the strength to face whatever happens. Maritza says that the doctor says that all this is going on because of the drugs that we did before she was pregnant. You know, and after she was pregnant, you know, people were fucking telling us, you know, not not to, you know, and Maritza didn't want to, you know, and I thought nothing bad was going to fucking happen to me. Me. Pray for me. Pray for my baby. I will. Repeat after me. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins. Nah, that ain't enough. That ain't enough. And God wants a piece of my fucking ass. So we see another side to Alvarez again here. Last time we saw his cocky, arrogant side when he was in the hospital, as well as seeing him be fearful of his grandfather. Now we're seeing that Alvarez is out and out afraid of what might happen to his son. 
He's been on a real emotional roller coaster already since coming to us. We get two intercutting scenes, so like last time I'll just call one of them the first scene and the other one the second scene. So it starts with Augustus telling us about how we need to give up what matters most to us in order to please God. Anything less he isn't interested. Then the first scene sees Ray carrying out communion for some inmates. It's mainly extras that we see, but from the main cast we see that Ryan is there as well. They take their communion wafers in hand, but there's an extra visitor this time round, which is Donald Groves, so maybe he was being serious about converting earlier on. He holds his tongue out for Ray to put the wafer on, which he reluctantly does. Groves then gives Ray a little wink on his way out, so then again maybe he wasn't being too serious after all. The second scene has Alvarez in his pod first stabbing his hand before slashing his right cheek, same as he did to the driver who scratched his car earlier. Both scenes are lit differently, suggesting that the communion happened earlier in the day, whereas Alvarez is in bed and I've heard of midnight mass but not midnight communion. We get one last segment with Augustus talking about how God expects us to be perfect before we close on McManus going down to the hall, where he sees Keane praying before leaving and we fade to black to end the episode. God knows he's perfect and we not. And we can never be, but he expects us to be. And he punishes us if we not, you know what I'm saying? God is the ultimate gangster. The supreme mob boss, you know what I mean? Make us live by his cold deadness if we don't. Yo, he never has to talk to us face to face. And he never has to explain exactly why he does what he does. You know what I'm saying? Nigga sits up there in heaven somewhere, drinking a cappuccino, chilling. <laughs> got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> he got the whole world by the balls. In excelsis deo and all that shit. So that was episode 3, God's Chillin'. Rather disappointingly, the body count has dropped dramatically this episode and we only had one death. I struggled as well to pick an MVP for this episode, as I think there were a couple of very good performances, but I think Alvarez just about gets it due to the emotional roller coaster of his son having been born and then falling ill very soon afterwards. Bonus points to him also for using Ray's confessional to actually discuss things unlike Groves and Ryan. That just about wraps things up for this episode, but just in case you missed any of the previous episodes, you can go back and listen to them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to follow the show, you can on Twitter, at Podcast, on Instagram, at Podcast, or you can email the show by contacting InsideOzPodcast at gmail.com. Leave a five-star review if you can. It's great help to increase exposure for the show, and I will catch you next time on Inside Oz with Series 1, Episode 4, Capital P.